Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We're standing in San Francisco with Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, and David Plotz, editor-at-large of Slate, and me. We're about to hop in our Acura and head to a mystery destination. We're not telling David where we're going until we get there, but it's one of my favorite spots in San Francisco. Dana, I'm pretty excited for our mystery destination. Should I ask you 20 questions? Why you chose it? Did sure. You... Let's see if we can narrow down at least the kind of thing I'm taking you to. Uh, but yes or no answer. Are you taking me to a place that you spent a lot of time when you lived here? I wouldn't say a lot of time, but it was a place that I regularly took visitors to the city. All right. Does it involve food? No. Am I playing a real 20 questions? So where I'm really trying to narrow it? Or or just a (laughs) a playful 20 questions? If you guess it, that's kind of deflating, right? All right. So it doesn't involve food. Okay. I'm not that hungry, so that's good. Is it in San Francisco proper? I believe so. Unless I don't know something about the city limits. Yes, it's in San Francisco proper. Oh, that's exciting. Has any tech billionaire bought it? (laughs) No, thankfully, this is one of the things I love about it. It is wonkily untouched by modernization. Oh, that's exciting. Is it beautiful? Yes. I'm so excited. (laughs) All right. I'm not going to ask any more questions. I don't want to know anymore. Here's a question for you, Dana. So the thing that strikes me, and I've only been on San Francisco on this trip for a day or so, but I've had this feeling every time I go out to San Francisco, is when you go to San Francisco, it feels distinctly like San Francisco. New York feels distinctly like New York. But a lot of American cities don't really, you, you, don't, you could be plopped down in them and you wouldn't be 100% sure where you were. Why do you think it is that San Francisco has maintained that strong sense of place I mean it physically more right. than more than anything else. I don't know. I mean, I think part of the answer is topography. Like San Francisco is so contained, it can't grow. You know, it's on this little peninsula. It's surrounded by this bay, and so it can. And there's all kinds of incredible zoning laws here. People were talking about this after the show last night. That you know, part of the problem with rents going up so high here is that there's all these zoning laws about density and how high buildings can be built and things like that. Even in sort of non-historic neighborhoods, it's really hard to build a high-rise in San Francisco because San Francisco is so tied to its local regional identity and remaining San Francisco, you know? So part of what gives it that feeling is the very thing that's driving people out and making it so unaffordable. But I don't know. Why is San Francisco so San Francisco-y? It's true. You know every minute that you're in San Francisco. I lived here on and off for 12 years. I lived here from 1989 to 2001, getting a master's and a PhD at Berkeley. Why did you leave? Because I finished my PhD, essentially. I mean, I loved it, but, you know, once you're you're no longer suckling at the teat of the university, I just wasn't, there was no work for me, not really anywhere to be. But it's a hard place to leave. I think I kept, I took so long to get out of graduate school because I was dropping out and coming back, but Berkeley was too irresistible to leave for good. Are you a doctor? You're Dr. Stevens? I am. I'm Dr. Stevens. A PhD. I did not realize that. Did you ever go on the market? 
yeah, I spent three years in the academic job market, but it's, a, it's an annual market, you know, so you do your thing and then you have to wait another year if you don't get a job. And that was exactly the period when I started writing for Slate because it was sort of, you know, academia was slowly rejecting me and so I was finding something else to do. Do you think when you look at the people who are your, your peers in graduate school that they've had careers that you envy or are you glad you made that decision ultimately to... It's two different questions. I do sometimes envy things about the academic career, but I don't think it was suited for me. You know, what I thought at the time was the terrible injustice of me getting a job, I now realize was probably various departments accurately assessing that, you know, I was not the right candidate. And I don't miss the teaching part of it, which makes me feel like it was not my profession. You know, I never loved teaching. And I kept thinking, well, I'm going to love it. I'll love it when I'm teaching the right material or when I'm getting paid better or, you know, when I have tenure or something. But the fact is that I just think I wasn't a born teacher. And I respect teaching so much that I would not want to be one who was not meant to be one. That's interesting. I get to do the writing, you know, and the research I kind of missed. You know, scholarly research was great, but... I'm I'm glad to hear you say that about teaching because I I once taught a high school class. I went my high school when I was in my early twenties. My high school invited me to come back and teach a class. They needed a political philosophy class taught or something. I thought sure that'll be fun, and I thought I'll be a good teacher. I'm a, right. I just was a terrible teacher. I don't I, I, I didn't were have you the terrible. What, what were your terrible qualities? What were my terrible qualities? I. Part of it is I didn't know the material very well, so I, I simply and I wasn't uh, patient enough to sit and master it. So that's one problem that perhaps is fixable. The other problem was I, I just couldn't care enough about the kids. I just didn't care whether mm-hmm. they learned. It wasn't. It wasn't. I wasn't that invested in them. I think when you're the editor of something and people are writing something for you, which is also a self-abnegating role, you when you're editing a writer. You also don't get the credit. You also are behind the scenes. But it's different in the sense that you immediately see a reward. You immediately feel like, oh, this thing was published. I am responsible for this part of it being good. I I had a great idea for assigning it, or I had a great idea for how to fix it, or I was the person who identified this writer as being the right person to write it. And so there's a a gratification that comes back pretty quickly to you. And I'm not not, uh, unselfish enough to live without that kind of gratification. And with teaching, I just didn't feel the gratification. Even when the students learned the material and there'd be these moments when they clearly had insight and perhaps I helped them get to that insight. But I just didn't, it didn't feel like I was, I was doing very much to make a big difference that I could measure. Right. And that in itself probably proves that you're not a born teacher because that's precisely the satisfaction that a, a real teacher describes, right? I felt like I made a difference and, you know, I was shaping their future or something. But it's happening in this dispersed way where you might shape their future when you're not even around to, <laughs> to get the brownie points right. for it. Right, right. Oh, we're almost there. This is not near as long of a drive as I thought. Should we do some more 20 questions? Okay. All right. It's not about food. It's beautiful. We'll probably be the only people there. Is it beautiful because of nature or because man has built it? Both. In part because of nature, in part because of what man has built in order to appreciate nature. Okay. Does it involve the ocean? Yes. Um, do I have to but go we'll in the water? But we'll get something out of it either way. No. Because I don't really like the water. <laughs> you I'm, don't? I'm you kind don't... of scared of the water. I'm Are you not, not a kind swimmer? Of, I'm a terrible swimmer. I hate the water. I find the ocean absolutely terrifying. Like at a at a very primal level, including just as a thing to look at and ponder. You don't like to just 
look out at the ocean. If I'm on a nice high promontory, it's okay because the chances of a tsunami taking me out <laughs> from my nice high promontory is low. A land shark coming out. <laughs> but any, I don't. I actually don't even like being at beach level. I mean, you know, I, it's fine to be at beach level. It's fine. I, I'm happy to walk down a beach and to, you know to gather driftwood and build some statuary. But in general, I find the ocean. Just terrifying. I don't like being in the ocean. I, it's it's going to be the an infinitude of, of everything. Yeah, or? and it's just you're going to be sucked out. It's going to take you away. You're going to be pulled out, and you're going to die. In Davy Jones' locker. I don't like being on boats. I don't much like being in a pool. Lakes, not so much. That seems like so impoverished. What a sad way to live. <laughs> you know, Dana, here's my view on this. We left that 400 million years ago. Why would we go back? <laughs> You're you, ju- you're you crawled out on regressing. your flippers and yes. you're not headed yeah, you're, back. You, 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 or some, some uh, earlier incarnation, you're, you're like a shark. Me and the land mammals, you know, that's what actually whales and dolphins did. They, they, they are creatures back. that came out with feet yes. and everything and then they're just like, yeah, I'm out of here. How's it going for them? <laughs> what civilization have they built? Any great movies made by <laughs> dolphins? <laughs> So we're near Ocean Beach in San Francisco now. We're looking out at the Sutro Baths, which were, I believe, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, kind of an elegant public bath overlooking the ocean. And they, they burned down and is now sort of a beautiful ruin. It looks almost like a Roman ruin by the ocean. It's a foggy, we have a foggy day, but you can see, you can still see the surf beating up on the baths down there. It's definitely terrifying. Why, you, why would you go swimming in that? Nobody's taking a dip in the Pacific Ocean right there at Ocean Beach. You're right, it's, it's really pounding, sir. And the water here is icy cold year-round, too. Is that where we're going? It's down here past the Cliff House. Not the Cliff House? No, it's not the Cliff House itself. It, so much drama. <laughs> it's, we're within sight of it. Giant camera. I have no idea what the giant camera is. Yes, or what per- Let's describe it for the listeners. So perched at the edge of this pounding surf on this beautiful foggy beach is this little yellow building with the words giant camera on it. That's actually shaped, you'll see this as we get closer to it, shaped like an old-fashioned camera with a little flashbulb chimney right, on Right, the flashbulb, right, that's what it is. Surprise, Dana. <laughs> well, now start 20 questions again. Maybe you can figure it out before we get there. Try to guess what's inside the building? Yeah, try to guess what's inside the giant camera. Like, it's not, obviously, it has to be something visual. You don't put it on the cliff unless you're going to be looking out over the cliff. But I, doesn't, I don't see where you're looking out from. So I'll that's confusing. I will give you a hint. Housed inside the building, which I hope it's open and we can get in there, is a piece of ancient technology. Ancient is maybe not the word. Very old technology. I feel like such an ignoramus. I don't know. I don't know what kind of technology. Is I'm it so a, happy the mystery is working. Is, this, is it a telescope? Is it a... No. Is it a metronome? I mean, not a metronome. <laughs> What's it called? Those things that you... Pendulum? Yeah, is it a giant pendulum? Is it a fissure into the earth? It's all dark. Well, we're coming within sight of the sign, There's and no in a minute, the secret is going to be given away. A camera obscura. Oh... It's a camera obscura at the edge of the ocean, but it looks like it's also closed. All right, so Dana, we have seen the outside of this building. They have cruelly closed it to us today. But what would what would we have seen? Yeah, it's a foggy day, so it looks like it's not open today. But the giant camera building houses a camera obscura, which is an optical device that 
how do you describe what a camera obscura does? It's a, it's a very old optical device. Leonardo da Vinci used it and possibly invented it. He sketched camera obscuras, and those are some of the earliest known designs of them. But essentially, it's using a hollow space, in this case a room, to turn the entire building into a camera. So there's a pinhole, or larger than a pinhole, but a small hole in the roof of the building. There's a lens through which light is refracted, and then there's a, a table, like a flat screen, horizontal flat screen, and if you stand there and the sun is shining, which it's not today, and shines through this lens, you can get a 360-degree view on this rotating table of, of the ocean that we're standing by. So it's just, to me, is really beautiful and incredible that, you know, in this Silicon Valley city that's developing all this technology, you can go look at this 600-year-old instrument that works exactly like Leonardo's would have in the 1500s. And if you stuck a photographic negative on the floor, you could get a photo. I guess that's true, right? If you had the right kind of paper, you would, you would essentially be making a developable image. And you can make your own camera obscura out of a watermelon or a box or whatever you want. I've never done it, but it's pretty easy to construct your own optical device that does the same thing. Maybe you could think of a startup that would do that. <laughs> We're back in the car, post-camera obscura. Sorry the camera wasn't open, but wasn't it still worth it? Isn't it such a cool spot? It is an amazingly cool spot. It's amazingly cool. Both the, the the camera, little islands off there, the beach, the fog, the trees. It was fantastic. This podcast is brought to you by Acura and the all-new 2015 TLX Luxury Performance Sedan. For decades, Acura has built performance sedans with unwavering purpose and passion. The all-new 2015 TLX represents more than the latest evolution. Rather, it's the clearest expression yet of Acura's performance philosophy. It's power and control brought into perfect balance. It's anticipating where the driver wants to go, changing the way wheels move and guide you. It's uncompromised design in the name of unrestrained feeling, putting exhilaration front and center once again. It's that kind of thrill. Check out the all-new 2015 TLX at Acura.com slash TLX. Or, better yet, experience the thrill for yourself and take a test drive at your local Acura dealer. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. <laughs> 